What's up, Batty Bees? I'm Brianna, mom, wife, serial entrepreneur, and host of the Badass Basic Bitch podcast. Each week, I sit down with a seemingly ordinary woman who's doing extraordinary things, and I get to share her story with you. So let's go. Buckle up as we're going to get real and dive into the shit nobody talks about. Welcome to the Batty Bee Club. So, so many people feel that they only need five hours of sleep or or six hours of sleep. The other thing is some people will have like 30 minutes of snoozes all down their phone. And I'm like, you would actually benefit so much more from getting 30 more minutes of deep sleep than 30 minutes of interrupted sleep every five minutes. Like that is so much worse for you. Like you would actually benefit so much more from just sleeping for another 30 minutes. So if you have that time to spare, set your alarm for that last time and then get up something has to change. So I started researching sleep, reading every single book there was on sleep, volunteering in the sleep clinic in my hospital. In that process, I fell in love with sleep. And I was like, whoa, this is more important than just feeling rested. Sleep is actually so important for every area of your life. Welcome back to another episode of Badass Basic Bitch. On today's episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with and learning from Dr. Angela Holiday-Bell. Dr. Angela is a renowned sleep expert with a passion for helping others understand the transformative power of good quality sleep and how obtaining this regularly can lead to a happier, healthier, and more productive life. And so today we are talking all about the things that involve sleep getting a better understanding of how it impacts our overall health and day-to-day lives. So thank you so much, um, Angela, for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I am always down to talk about sleep. It's literally my favorite. (laughs) So before we get started, why don't you give our listeners a little bit more information and insight into who you are and your background? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a board certified physician as well as a certified sleep specialist. I'm also the founder and CEO of my sleep consulting company, The Solution to Sleep LLC, um, where I help individuals who struggle with chronic insomnia get better sleep as well as corporations uh, to to provide their workforce with the education um, and tools they need to get better sleep as well. I like to start with where my sleep journey started. I've always had a deep loving relationship with sleep, but as I went through medical training, specifically residency, it became harder and harder to get sleep. I started to suffer from insomnia and literally became an overall worse version of myself in almost every sense. Um, And so I was like, okay, this is not going to work. Like something has to change. So I started researching sleep, reading every single book there was on sleep, volunteering in the sleep clinic in my hospital. In that process, I fell in love with sleep. And I was like, whoa, this is more important than just feeling rested. Sleep is actually so important for every area of your life. And so as I started to implement the therapeutic strategies I was learning into my own life and seeing how it literally changed my life, I was like, okay, I have to help other people do the same. So I got the formal training, became certified, and then the rest is history. It's so relatable. I'm a mom of four and like the older I got having babies, the more important that sleep was for me. In particular, when Skylar was born last July, um, I had really bad postpartum depression. And I do think a lot of it was related to the fact that for five years, I was, well, maybe three and a half years, I was sleeping like on this regular schedule because there's a gap between her and Emma. And then when I had her, it was just this like drastic impacting thing on me where I'm like, I don't have to eat. I don't have to shower. I don't have to do go outside, but I have to sleep to function as a human. (laughs) 
Absolutely. So I'd love to hear from you. Like, how does sleep impact our overall health? Yeah, that's such a great question. And it's so funny because when people ask me that, I'm like, it's it's easier to say what sleep doesn't impact than what it does because literally our entire being and functioning is impacted by sleep. Starting with, let's go ahead and start with weight management. So for a lot of people, that's a big deal, right? Not getting enough sleep actually causes an imbalance in your metabolic hormones such that you're likely to eat more and eat worse foods. So the hormone that causes you to be hungry, ghrelin, is released in higher quantities when you're sleep deprived. And the hormone that signals to your body that you're full leptin is released in lower quantities. So you're eating more. You're also reaching for higher carb, higher carb containing foods and higher sugar, higher fats. Your ability to rationalize uh, is significantly hindered. So you're going to reach for that, you know, cookie or bag of Doritos much quicker than that salad, right? You're also less likely to be active. Who wants to go to the gym or even move around in general when you're not getting enough sleep? So it sets up this perfect system for weight gain uh, and obesity. The other thing is it increases your risk for cardiovascular disease. So when you are not getting enough sleep, it actually sends your body into a state of fight or flight. Most people have heard of that fight or flight response, right? It's a stress response. Um, Your body's like, wait, if we're not taking part in sleep, there must be some threat that we need to be on high alert for. And when you're chronically sleep deprived, it's chronically on. So at least a chronic inflammation in your blood vessels, it's taxing on your heart and sets you up for high blood pressure cardiovascular. In addition, your stress hormone cortisol is also being released at higher quantities in for sustained periods, which interferes with your ability to manage blood sugar appropriately. So your body becomes less responsive to insulin, increasing your risk of type 2 diabetes. Uh, you're much more likely to suffer from anxiety and depression. There have been newer research linking chronic sleep deprivation to neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease. And so it's one of those things that like pick any system, pick anything, uh, sleep is definitely going to affect And so I know that there are some sleep cycles, right? Where I, I hear the fancy REM, that's all I really know, honestly. So I'm only going to throw that out. But from an expert, not me, I am not an expert. I'm very good at sleeping, but I don't know much about it. What are the sleep cycles and their significance? Maybe give us the overview of that. Yeah. So there are four different sleep cycles. So you start with in one, which is that light stage of sleep, that stage that you're like, was I really sleeping? Like you might nod off and you wake up and you're like, was I asleep? That is kind of in one. In two is a slightly deeper stage of sleep where we actually spend the majority of our night in is that in two stage. And so in that stage, your heart rate starts to decrease, blood pressure, breathing rate starts to decrease. And then you get into the deep stage of sleep or in three. And we say, generally speaking, that stage is going to be restorative for your body. So like growth hormone is released during that stage, your tissues, muscles are repaired during that stage. And then you get into REM sleep that now there's this whole thing about it and everyone knows like, oh, I just need to get my REM sleep. But we spend different percentages of the night in different sleep stages and our body chooses that amounts based on our needs. So there's like recovery, sleep and all those things. So you can't spend the whole night in REM and you shouldn't spend the whole night in REM. But that is where most of your dreaming occurs, not actually all of your dreaming. And we say that that stage is restorative for your brain. So obviously this is not black and white, but a lot of brain neuroplasticity, memories are uh, uh, consolidated during that stage. And then you start all over again and kind of cycle through the rest. That's really interesting. How, How do we know? What, what, like, what's how, what stages and how much, and if we're actually meeting that quota per se, like, how do we know this? Yeah. So, 
There's no great way for you to know it unless you're getting like a formalized sleep study in a sleep clinic. Then we can kind of track the sleep stages. You Like I said, your breathing rate and brain activity changes. So like during REM, your brain is almost the same activity-wise as it is when you're awake. So your brain is actually very awake during REM sleep. Your body is paralyzed, so you're not acting out those things if your brain is very awake. And in deep uh, sleep, we call it slow wave. There's like these slow undulating waves. And so if someone is watching that with the technology built to do that, then you can know how um, what stage you're in. People have these wearables now yeah. that's like, oh, you spent this yeah. much time in deep sleep. They're not built to really tell the difference between those things. So they're actually not great at that. So people should be careful when they're utilizing them for that purpose because they, they try and, you know, it's the closest estimation you can get without being hooked up, but they're actually not great for that. The main thing is going to be putting, uh, setting things into place in your sleep life such that you're getting the best quality and quantity of sleep that you can and your body will then take part in the percentage of sleep stages that's needed. So like if you miss out on several days of sleep, there's actually something called REM rebound mm-hmm. where your body will actually spend more time in REM and go into REM quicker than it would before. There's nothing you can do to really change that. The best thing you can do is just make sure that you're setting yourself up to get good quality sleep. Okay. Okay. You kind of talked about some misconceptions. Let's dive into that. What are some common, because I'm sure there's a lot. I can think of so. I have so many questions. What are some common (laughs) sleep misconceptions that you hear that people often believe, but you want to debunk? So, so many people feel that they only need five hours of sleep or or six hours of sleep or less. And that is very, so there, there are Uh, Some people who are genetically short sleepers in which they need less than six hours of sleep or six hours of sleep or less. The percentage is approximately less than 0.0001% of the population. So the chances of that being you or anyone that you know is very slim. So people will say, oh yeah, I only need five hours. Very unlikely. On the flip side, a lot of people are aware that they need more than the recommended seven to eight hours. So I need nine hours of sleep. Seven hours, I'm still very tired. Eight hours, I'm okay but not optimal by any means. Nine hours is that sweet spot. So I think people get their sleep need wrong. And because of that, I often focus on that. Like you need to know what your individualized sleep need is. And the key is what you need to function optimally, not what you can get by on, not like, okay, as long as I have my four shots of espresso, I'm good. Like that's not your sleep need. That's you masking it, but you need to know what that is. Yeah, I've heard this, uh, I forgot who it was. My husband was telling me about it. He's like, you know, so-and-so only gets four and a half hours of sleep a night. And he talks about that. And I was like, okay, well, he probably does like cocaine or <laughs> or <laughs> uh, caffeine. You know, I'm all <laughs> drug caffeine free. And so I know that I need between eight and nine hours because I feel better. And that's just for me. So if so-and-so wants to sleep for four and a half, congratulations. Like that works for him. Um, but I, but I always wondered that of like, do we actually only need four and a half hours of sleep? Um, but I like your answer. It's like, you need to figure out what, what's best for you. Okay. So I will say Skylar obviously sleeps 12 hours. Um, and my kids are a little bit different. Um, generally they're around 10 hours. I have some parents whose kids get like seven hours. Um, and they're like, well, you know, as they get older, they just need less sleep. And I'm like, my kids are the same and they're still sleeping. So I'm like, am I, what's wrong with my children? What, is that a misconception? What is that? 
It is, okay, so it isn't in the sense that as you age, generally speaking, you do need yeah. less sleep. So infants can sleep up to 17 hours a night, and that is normal, or a day a night, yes. right? They, they spend a lot of time sleeping during the day and at night. And then as they get older, it's like uh, 14 hours, 12 hours. Still, though, young kids need 10 to 12 hours, and it really isn't until you reach adolescence. You still need eight to nine hours. So we're we're not even recommending the the standard amount of sleep for adolescents. We're still like, oh, seven to eight hours. That's actually not true. As you become an adult, the average is seven to nine hours. But again, that's an average. But for kids, for sure, they should be sleeping more than that. The There are several websites, the National Sleep Foundation, American Academy of Pediatrics, that has this nice chart of like the averages that kids should be sleeping. But definitely, it shouldn't be any less any less really than like nine hours of sleep until you reach adolescence and like eight to nine hours. Okay. Another question about misconception. I have a friend that says, I just sleep better after a glass of wine. Like does alcohol (laughs) help you sleep better? Um, Yes and no. So a lot of people have this misconception, right? Like, oh, they call it a nightcap for a reason. I drink my glass of wine. It makes me sleepy. And that's true initially. So alcohol is initially a sedative. So it will make you sleepy. The problem is it's metabolized very quickly and after that becomes a stimulant. So while it can help you fall asleep, it is also more likely to lead to poor quality sleep, middle of the night wakings, interfere with your REM sleep, early morning wakings. So it is bad for your quality of sleep. So even though it causes you to fall asleep quickly, not great for staying asleep. And so I typically recommend staying away from alcohol at least three to four hours before bedtime. Yeah. An interesting thing, I used to wear like a NutriSense, um, a glucose monitor just for fun. I, I had... um what's it called? Gestational diabetes for all my kids. And so I would just wear it after. And I I remember particularly one night, Hunter and I went out and I did have like a glass or two of wine. And then when I looked at my glucose levels in the middle of the night, I had a huge spike. And when I was researching it, it was talking about alcohol before bed um, can spike your glucose levels and your body thinks to wake up because it's like, you don't spike the glucose in the middle of the night unless you're, you know, need that energy for something. So I thought that was really fascinating. Okay. The big fad, I think, with children, at least maybe where I live, is the melatonin. Um, so melatonin mm-hmm. sleep gummies. Does this impact future ability to sleep for children if they're taking um, this like melatonin sleep gummy or tablet, whatever they're taking it in. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So we don't have enough research to definitively say that it will or will not impact their future sleep, right? The problem is we don't have long-term research on melatonin, period. I think the longest that study that I know of is a year of elderly individuals using it. And there is some research to say that elderly, meaning uh, older than age 65 individuals do have a decrease in their melatonin production. So in those instances, maybe it's helpful, um, but we don't have that in children at all. So we don't really know the impact. Uh, but it can be problematic for many reasons. So the first first thing is that melatonin is not FDA regulated, meaning we don't know what's actually in the bottle. Many people may be aware of a study that recently came out, especially over the pandemic, when people are like grabbing melatonin left and right, um, that the the amount of melatonin that's in the packages is significantly different than what the label is. So it can be up to 300% different, meaning if it says it's five milligrams, it can be 15, 20 milligrams that you're actually getting in that one tablet or gummy. And it can be other ingredients like serotonin and things that aren't listed because it's not regulated. So there are a lot more kids taking a lot more melatonin than um, than intended. 
And kids actually produce a lot of melatonin. So kids are not deficient in melatonin, generally speaking. There are some subclasses that may have some deficiencies, but for the most part, kids produce a sufficient amount. So I think you need to look at the reason why you're using the melatonin. Um, For a short-term transition of their circadian rhythm to get back on track, I think it can be helpful. Meaning, uh, especially let's say adolescents, they actually have a biological shift in their circadian rhythm such that they do naturally get sleepy later and then want to wake up later. That night owl, that's like a natural shift for adolescents. So if we're coming off the summer and they were going to sleep at, you know, 2 a.m. and then waking up at 12 p.m., it's going to be hard to transition to school. So a short-term course of that to just pull back their circadian rhythm can be helpful. But using it every night to fall asleep generally is not needed. And I think you need to look at sleep habits as opposed to trying to cover them up with melatonin. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, I actually had used it a couple times for AJ. Um, he has anxiety. And so now it's like treating that anxiety because uh, when you have anxiety and you're laying awake at night thinking about all of the things that could go wrong, are you sleeping? No. So let's treat that versus mask right? Because he's not going to sleep. Um, so I love that advice. And and we've definitely used it like this summer. They, they go, they went to their dad's this summer. They come back here. They may stay up really, really late. And so I'm like, okay, well now you have to start waking up at like, you know, 6.30. Let's for a week move you back and then take you off. So yeah, but I, um, I like the advice of like, don't mask, really figure out the why behind it. Okay. So let's talk about snoozing, hitting that snooze button. I have recently refused to hit snooze. I'm like, if I'm up, I'm up. Let's go, you know? Um, But I'm curious, is this actually helpful to go back to sleep for 10 to 15 minutes? Like, are we helping ourselves? And a lot of people don't like when I say this. People love their snooze button, but it really is not helpful um, and could be harmful for a couple of reasons. So the first thing is, when you wake up out of sleep, now the, uh, some research will say that you're waking up out of REM sleep. And I, if you're using an alarm clock, it's hard to say what cycle you're waking up out of. But whatever, whether it's light or deep, when you wake up from that and you hit the snooze and you go back to sleep, you are likely to fall right back into a deeper REM stage. And when you wake up from that again, you're more likely to suffer from sleep inertia. So a groggy, more disoriented feeling that you get upon waking than you would if you just turned the alarm off and woken up at the first thing. So that's the first thing like it actually is worse for just how you feel than waking up after the first alarm. The second thing is there's something psychological about getting up and getting going as opposed to prolonging the start of the day. And it teaches your body to, to say, when do, I don't know what the cues are to wake up because the alarm is in, like the alarm wakes me up and then I go back to sleep. And so it just makes it actually more difficult to get up and get going than just getting up when your alarm goes off. The other thing is some people will have like 30 minutes of snoozes all down their phone. And I'm like, you would actually benefit so much more from getting 30 more minutes of deep sleep than 30 minutes of interrupted sleep every five minutes. Like that is so much worse for you. Like you would actually benefit so much more from just sleeping for another 30 minutes. So if you have that time to spare, set your alarm for that last time and then get up. And then obviously some people sleep right through their alarm because, again, they've taught themselves that the alarm is not the cue to wake up. So you're snoozing through it. It makes you start your day off more anxious, more worked up. So there are not very many good reasons why you should hit the snooze button. So I always recommend just getting up with that first. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that idea of like count how many snoozes you have and then just wake up during that time. Right. You probably get an extra 15 minutes of sleep that's higher quality than like. And that's why I stopped doing it because I was like, I feel like crap when I do this. I'm just going to (laughs) get up. (laughs) 
Um, okay. Napping. And I'm not talking about children napping. We get it. Some kids nap. That's great for them, right? Like I've had some great nappers. I've had some really shitty nappers. It is what it is. Let's talk about (laughs) us as adults. It's, it's becoming this popular discussion when we're talking about sleep. What's your perspective? Okay. So I love napping. I am an, I I took a nap earlier today. Um, I think naps are amazing, but they have to be done responsibly. So what I mean by that is a true power nap. So a power nap is a short nap lasting no more than 30 minutes. So like 10 to 30 minutes, typically taking some time before 3 a.m. or 3 p.m. I'm sorry. The reason for that is when you nap longer than 30 minutes, after 30 minutes, you're getting into those deeper stages of sleep, right? So the slow wave sleep I talked about, the REM sleep. And again, when you're awakened from that stage, you're more likely to have the sleep inertia where you feel groggy, disoriented, confused. And it really takes away the benefits of napping in and of itself. So it it doesn't make sense to do that. The other thing is napping for too long and or napping after 3 p.m. steals from your sleep drive. So we think about what drives us towards sleep or what uh, regulates our sleep. We have our circadian rhythm, that roughly 24-hour cycle that dictates when you feel awake and alert. But you also have your sleep drive, which is something that builds from the moment you open your eyes until you fall asleep to sleep it off. If you nap for too long or you nap too late, you steal from that sleep drive such that it's harder for you to fall asleep at night. And napping should never be a replacement for night sleep. The most benefits of sleep will come from that consolidated overnight sleep. And a power nap is just like icing on the cake. So like it can help you get past that mid-afternoon slump that most of us have because that's the way our our circadian rhythm um, regulates our, our sleep and wakefulness. Helps you to be more energetic, creative, motivated, all those things. Uh, but you don't want to sacrifice your nighttime sleep for that because it can't make up for that. So definitely not. Any day I don't have clinical responsibilities, I absolutely take a power nap. But you definitely have to do a response. Yeah. there. I, I am not a napper. I rarely nap. I remember, though, I mean, over the summer, there was one day where I was like, I need to nap. You know, like I was just so exhausted. And so I took a nap and then it was so hard for me to fall asleep. I didn't like fall asleep until Mm -hmm. 1 a.m. And I was like, damn you nap. I'm one of those people that it affects. (laughs) But I feel like Hunter, if he took a nap, he could probably fall asleep later, like this normal time. You know, it it could be the same amount Mm -hmm. of time. So it's like, again, know your body is what you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. And if you suffer from chronic insomnia, which is different than just like, I don't give myself enough time to sleep, or um, I've had a couple bad nights of sleep. If you have chronic insomnia, then we recommend not napping at all because it is so important to utilize that sleep drive and you don't want to impact your overnight sleep at all. So there are some situations where you just should avoid napping. And if you're someone who is more impacted by napping, you should avoid it. Yeah, I like that. Let's talk about pre-sleep routines because I... I think I need some validation here. <laughs> but if you tell me that I'm wrong, then I'm going to be like, I can let go of the anxiety. So either way, whatever you say, I'm going to feel good about it. But we have a really, okay. um, like, not strict, but we follow a routine for sleep. And I'm talking kids and myself. Like, there is a pre-sleep routine. Um, I'm curious, what role does this have in our sleep quality, if any? A significant role. So I love that you do that. It's actually so, so important. And I think that a lot of people understand that for their children, right? So a lot of people have bedtime routines for their kids. We're going to take a bath and we brush our teeth and then we read a story and we snuggle, then you fall asleep, right? And we're going to do that at the same time every day. 
But as adults, we definitely need that too. And that's because sleep, you need something to transition you from the activity of the day to sleep. Sleep happens fundamentally when your brain waves slow down. And if you're so active and and, uh, task jumping, multitasking, alert, those brain waves are firing, it's very difficult to make that transition. And your bedtime routine acts as that, right? So it actually is so important. It's also an anchor for sleep such that once you're starting that routine, your brain has already connected that routine to sleep and it makes sleep happen more efficiently for you. So if you're starting to dim the lights and you turn on this music and you're reading your book, your brain's like, oh, we must be trying to go to sleep. Let's send that melatonin. Let's calm things down. And so it's so important. The other thing is research has actually shown that it's protective against stress. So there was a study that was done on two uh, different groups of individuals one that routinely followed a bedtime routine, one that did not. And then it exposed them before bed to some purposefully stress-inducing videos that will cause anyone to be stressed and anxious and found that those who routinely followed a bedtime routine were less impacted in terms of their sleep than those who did it. Because having that routine consistently, again, allowed uh, sleep to happen more efficiently, increase the melatonin production, and all of those things to be protective against things that would otherwise disrupt your sleep. So I think having a consistent soothing bedtime routine is one of the best ways to improve your sleep quality. Okay. Okay, point for me for that. But I know this one, I'm probably going to get a negative point. Our like reward at the end of doing all of your bedtime stuff is one show. And I realize that, and they don't have any screen time during the day other than that. And I probably realize reading after reading a bunch of news articles that this is probably not the best thing for my little ones to watch a TV show before we get into our beds. Um, Tell me how bad that is for us. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So that's true. So you definitely don't want to end the bedtime routine with a TV show for a couple of reasons. The first thing is light is the strongest factor influencing your circadian rhythm in a way that tells you to be awake and alert. And you can take advantage of that during the day by exposing yourself to natural light, exposing yourself to all the, you know, different um, rays of light. And that will help to keep you alert and active and also helps to uh, increase your melatonin production at night. Conversely, when you expose yourself to light before bed, particularly the blue wavelength of light, which electronics like the television, iPad, uh, computer are all rich in blue light, that signals to your body that you want to be awake and alert and it tells your body to stop producing melatonin. So it actually can um, work in opposition for what you're trying to do. So you definitely don't want to do that. So even when it comes to like bright overhead lights, there were studies done that showed that people who exist in just normal room lighting before bed had a, a decrease in their melatonin release and a delay by up to 90 minutes because those lights are saying, hey, we want to be awake and alert. Let's not do this melatonin thing because obviously we want to be awake. So dimming the lights are going to be super important using low emission bedside lamps. What I would say is, I would just flip the order in which you do things. So I would say, if you want to do, I think some people use television to wind down and all those things. I think that's okay, but I would do that first and then do your bedtime routine under dim lights, low simulation. Cause that's the other thing too, is social media, television shows and all those things are simulating, right? They, they activate our minds and we're so into it and we're laughing and all those things. And that is not conducive to sleep. So I mean, start with that and then do the soothing bedtime routine. And then get Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think my problem is, is that the, the reward allowed them to do or motivated them to do all those things leading up mm-hmm. to the reward where if they get the reward first, they're like, mm, I don't <laughs> do anything. But they're getting to that age now where it could be like, 
and then unlocking what you do tonight unlocks the reward tomorrow, right? They're old enough to realize that. So I think it's time to, to change that. Um, and I'm also going to tell my husband how terrible it is to fall asleep to watching stuff on his phone. He is the worst with that. The worst. Um, all right, let's talk about sleep and work performance. I think that there can be a huge impact of sleep on our day-to-day job performance. Um, and so I'm curious, how does sleep quality influence our ability to focus and perform well at work and our kids to perform at school? There's a huge impact on of sleep on your work performance in so many different elements and domains. So we can start with productivity right? So not getting enough sleep actually decreases your productivity by some studies say 30 to 40%. So you're actually getting less done in the same amount of time uh, if you're sleep deprived. And that's because when you're sleep deprived, so you have not to get too uh, kind of scientific, but different parts of your brain control different functions, right? You have your frontal lobe that controls executive functioning. So that's uh, your ability to focus, pay attention, tasks, and all those things. When you're sleep deprived, the executive brain is not functioning appropriately, which is also why you're uh, more likely to reach for high sugary, high fat meals and all those things. You're, you are not open to delayed gratification at all. It's like, I need that instant gratification. You become more primitive in that sense. And so your ability to focus, sustain attention is significantly impaired when you're not getting enough sleep. And so that is going to definitely impact your productivity. Um, the other thing is your creativity is impacted. So Particularly that REM sleep is what we kind of attribute to sparking creativity, to finding solutions, problem solving, finding solutions to things that you didn't uh, previously have a solution for. All those things are impacted by your sleep. So if you're not doing that, your ability to problem solve and find new solutions is significantly impacted. Your memory is significantly impacted. And most people require, you know, their memory when they're functioning at work. So while you're sleeping, all the information that you consume during the day is consolidated, is transferred to your longer term memory. The, the memories and information that you don't need and are not important are actually pruned from your brain while you're sleeping. All of these things are happening when you're when you're asleep. There have been studies done um, on individuals where they gave them a memory task and had individuals stay up for a period of eight hours during the day or conversely sleep overnight and then given the same memory task the next day. And by far, so many studies done on this, the individuals who are able to sleep overnight did way better on those tasks the next day. So it's not just a time thing. It's actually the memories that are consolidated while you're sleeping. Um, so it's, it's so, sleep and work are so intertwined and that sleeping better impacts how you work, how you work, the stress and anxiety that comes with that impacts how you sleep. And so it is important to set both up in a way that's going to be conducive to the other in order to perform optimally, because you can get by, but you're definitely not going to be performing at your best if you're not getting enough sleep. Yeah, that's so fascinating. So if people want to reevaluate their sleep or start changing it, which they do, how should they start? My number one, two, and three tips for better sleep is prioritizing sleep. Honestly, Making sleep a priority, like that is what was the biggest change in my life because when I was going through my training, I was like, listen, I'll sleep when I get to it. I have so much to do. I don't have time to sleep. I'm going to work on this thing here, work on that thing there, chart, and then whatever time I have left for sleep, that's when I'll sleep. And it doesn't work like that. Like that was not helpful. That was not conducive to sleep because there was there's so much that goes into sleeping. It's more than just 
turning off the lights and getting into your bed. It really starts from the moment you open your eyes. So instead, what I do now, and mind you, you know, I wear a lot of roles. I'm very busy all throughout the day. I still practice clinically as a physician. I'm an owner of a business. I'm a sleeping social, I'm a wife, all these things. However, I have nine hours of my day that I will sleep and everything else will fall into place around that. The days that I don't sleep, me getting all those other things done significantly decreases my mo- my motivation to do those things, my energy to do those things. I'm just like, whatever can get me by. Like, I just need to get by through this day. Uh, as opposed to when I'm well rested, I'm like, yes, let's go. Let's take this on. I can do this. I can do that. I can do that. And I just perform much better and more optimally. So start with prioritizing sleep. Start with sleep in mind. The next thing is, if you are feeling like you've Set a good bedtime routine into place like we talked about. You set up your day in a way that's better for sleep. So getting natural light exposure, limiting caffeine, which we didn't talk about uh, quite as much, napping responsibly, like doing all the things and you feel like I am not getting the sleep that I need to feel rested and feel like my best self, get help. Like anything else that goes on medically, people will get help. If you were to go outside and break your arm, you would be like, oh, I guess I got to figure this out with this broken arm. You would know that I need my arm to function appropriately for me to function appropriately. Same thing for sleep. So if you're not getting the sleep you need despite your best efforts, absolutely seek help because everybody deserves to sleep. Yeah, I, I think that's so true. So where can people find you or what kind of resources do you offer for people that who want to start this like sleep journey? Yeah, so I offer individual consultations for uh, people struggling with a range of sleep issues through my website, thesolutionissleep.com. I think a great place for people to start is my book that I just released called Sleeping on the Job, Proven Strategies to Optimize Your Workplace Performance and Personal Well-Being Through Better Sleep. As I already mentioned, sleep and work are so intertwined, it's really hard to separate the two. And I think for most people, setting your work life up in a way that's conducive to sleep and sleeping in a way that's conducive to work will work wonders in your life. In that book, I break down all of the strategies, all of the research behind those strategies. I even break it down into different work situations. So remote work, uh, night shift work, transitional work, where you kind of work different schedules, all those things and how you can set those up for better sleep. So I would start there. You can go to my website, The Solution is Sleep, uh, or you can find it on Amazon, Sleeping on the Job. Awesome. And then something I ask everyone on the podcast, if you could have anyone listening, get one piece of advice from this episode, what would it be? So a good way to answer that is probably with my favorite quote that goes, instead of asking, have I done enough to deserve to rest? I've started asking, have I rested enough to do my best work? And I think that just encapsulates what your mindset should be uh, concerning sleep. You deserve sleep. You don't have to earn it. It's not a reward. Start your day with sleep in mind because you deserve it just by virtue of living and breathing and everything else will actually work better when you're I love that quote. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, It has been so fascinating. I'm definitely going to change some of my own routines. Um, Just really appreciate it. Thanks for being on the podcast. As always, thank you for listening. Check us out on Instagram at badassbasicbitch. And thank you to Saw and Sign, our production studio. We'll see you next week.